speak the name of Jesus together. There's no other name. So in the name of Jesus, we open up the word of God. In the name of Jesus, we open up our minds. In the name of Jesus, we open up our hearts. I pray that as we leave today, in the name of Jesus, we would open up our mouths. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And welcome again to Bayou City Fellowship. So glad you're here. A little bit different seating arrangement today because my most striking feature is the back of my head. And I just felt like you guys were being deprived of that. So had to change. So, uh, but no, we're doing this just to say we're family together and it uh, feels a little bit more like um, we're getting together in Jesus' name than we're coming to see a show done in Jesus' name. And that felt, uh, that felt right. And so we may do this for a while. It may be a total failure today. and We'll be back to normal. Who can know these things? Turn to Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15. It says in verse 4, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Now, sometimes when I read the Gospels, when I read the words of Jesus, they make me feel warm, like someone is giving me a hug. You know, things like, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. Then there are other things that Jesus says that make me say, "Uh Uh-oh. I don't know when the last time you read something of his that uh, made you a little bit nervous. For me, the all-time is Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says that uh, I and you, we will have to give an account for every careless word that came out of our mouth. Now to that, I say, uh uh-oh, because I say a lot of careless words. In fact, I imagine that when we are all standing in judgment, that it is going really well for you. Uh, But we are spending so much time on my careless words that they just have to pull me out of line to get disciplined even more off to the side. That's what I imagine. That's how many careless words are consistently coming out of my mouth. And I have experienced just the taste of what it feels like for those careless words to come to light, for us to be held accountable for them. Um, They always start with... uh, conversations that go like this. I heard that you said. Anybody else ever have this? Please just show of hand. Anybody else's careless words ever come back to haunt you? So me and like four other people in here. I heard that you said, and, and, and nothing good ever comes out of that phrase anyway. So if you open up your email uh, box today, and uh, that's how it starts. Dear, your name, I heard that you said, just turn it off. It's going to be bad. It's never, I heard that you said that I'm so beautiful and wonderful. You know, it's, I heard that you said, and then it's bad news. And it feels awful for that to come back and haunt us. But we instinctively know, I think, and this is what we are running after today, that Your words and my words, our words are powerful. It's not if they're powerful, it's not when they're powerful, it's not they might be powerful. Our words are powerful. Will we use them for people or against people? The scripture says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. We see the influence here. It's a tree of life. Or it breaks the spirit. The scripture also says that 
death and life are in the power of the tongue. It says in another place, rash words are like sword thrusts. And if you've been a victim of those rash words, if you've been on the receiving end of words like that, you know exactly what the writer of Proverbs is is talking about. It does feel like a wound. It does feel personal. It also talks about how powerful the words are on the positive side. Gracious words are like honey. And then it says this, if you control your mouth, you will keep yourself from trouble. Doesn't that feel like a very efficient parenting method? You know, we all want our kids to stay out of trouble. Let's just teach them how to control their mouths. Because apparently, if you can control your mouth, you'll keep yourself from trouble. It says here in verse 4 that a gentle tongue is a tree of life. That may ring some bells in your scripture memory. The tree of life is referenced two primary times in the scripture. In the first few pages of the Bible and the last few pages. And so I I want to show them both to you. So turn to Genesis chapter 2. And Revelation chapter 22. Genesis chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 22. Genesis chapter 2 verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there are two trees that are given names in the Garden of Eden. One is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree that Adam and Eve ate from. The other is the tree of life. Now, Revelation chapter 22, the Apostle John, after Jesus has ascended and years have gone by, he gets a vision of heaven. He gets a vision of what the kingdom come will look like. It says this in verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So from these two references, we can use it as a framework for us to know what our words are supposed to be like because our words are supposed to be a tree of life. And in Genesis 1 through 3, we see the tree of life in the midst of the creation story. God created everything out of nothing. But it's not just a creation story, it's also the story of relationships. God creates everything out of nothing, and then on the sixth day, He creates man, and man is good, but it's not good for man to be alone, so God creates Eve so that Adam and Eve can be together. And what that tells us is that our relationships are good and good for us. Now, depending on how your relationships are going lately, you may agree or disagree with that, but relationships are good and good for us. But what determines whether or not we see the fruition of that good, whether we see that good come to pass, most often is our words. Think about the relationships that are the strongest in your life. Words are what makes it strong. Think of the relationships that where there's been some distance. It's either been the presence of some harmful words or the absence of, uh, of positive words that have created distance in those relationships. But our, our words are supposed to be like a tree of life, which is life-giving There's creation to it. 
Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says it a different way when it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. See, God is always at work. He's always at work in you, and He's always at work in the lives of people around you. This is what Philippians chapter 1 tells us when it says that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. So God is at work in you, He's at work in the people around you, and He is going to bring that work to full completion, and He's going to use your words as a part of that work. God has anointed your words, the words that come out of your mouth, to accomplish His purpose in someone else. We don't think of our words this way. We think of our words as uh, means to accomplish what we want. We use them as tools for us. But God uses your words as a tool for Him, for someone else. Your words have an anointing to them. They have a God-given purpose to them. Not just to do for yourself, but to do His work in someone else. But He's at work. Now most of us, we don't see that work in other people. It's like Gideon in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. Uh, an angel comes to Gideon and says, Oh, mighty man of valor to Gideon. And Gideon kind of does this like, Who? Are, are, are you talking to me? So you can imagine, men, wouldn't this be fantastic if one of God's messengers came to you and just said before he gave you the message, he, he said, um, You're a stud. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, you're just awesome. You're just the most awesome. You're a mighty man. You're strong. And you'd be like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Amen. And then some of us would be like, are are you talking to me? Surely you can't be talking to me because that's not how I think of myself. And that's what Gideon did. Gideon was like, you can't be talking to me. I'm no mighty man of valor. In fact, when we find Gideon, he is hiding away, doing his job so that these enemies don't come and steal his wheat. And he starts going through his resume. Now, most of us use a resume to, to get ourselves ahead. Uh, Gideon lists his resume as to show that he's at the bottom. And he starts saying, listen, out of all the tribes in Israel, my tribe is the least. And of all the clans in my tribe, uh, my clan is the least. And of all the families in the, my clan, my family is the least. And of all the people in my family, I am the least. I am no mighty man of valor. And Gideon may not have even had anybody to speak up for him in that moment as he's listing his anti-resume. You know, maybe there wasn't anybody in his life to go, oh, Gideon, you're just being falsely humble. You know, maybe these things were true. And maybe that's the way you look. But we never know where God is working. We can't see that work. We can't see what he sees, but he is at work. The Apostle Paul understood this with Timothy. Timothy was Paul's spiritual son. Paul didn't have biological children, but he says, I got children. And Timothy is one of those uh, children. He's my son. And Paul thought so much of Timothy that he didn't even need to go places himself. He could just send Timothy in his place. And Timothy ended up being a great pastor, and, and he's a main character in the New Testament. But Timothy really struggled with fear really struggled with anxiety. I know that's not relevant in a room like this, but, but Timothy did, and, and Paul wrote about it a lot. And In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, and he says, I'm sending Timothy to you, but when he gets there, put him at ease. One, another translation says, when he gets there, show him he has no reason to be afraid. Can you imagine going, uh, you know, on your first day of work after you've graduated from college? It's a new job, and you're there, and you got, you know, you spend all your money on a, a work wardrobe, and you you pull up, and and you walk in, and you're shaking the hand of your manager, and your manager says, "It's so glad uh, for you to be here. Uh, your mom wrote a letter uh, to me, and uh, and I just want you to know that you don't have any reason to be afraid." 
How humiliating would that have been for him? But Timothy had this problem with fear. In fact, in First and Second Timothy, letters written just to him from the Apostle Paul, when you go back and read it now with that lens, you'll see words jumping off the play, page of, you know, God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity. And, and Timothy, be courageous and be bold and don't back down. Paul uses his words to accomplish God's purpose and plan in Timothy. God has anointed the syllables that come out of your mouth, not just to accomplish for yourself, but to accomplish his work in other people. Now, I'm guessing most of us agree with all of that. There's been nothing that you would go, eh, I don't know. But start applying that truth to a specific person. And many of us will feel a hesitation in our spirit. Like, yes, that's all true, but I hope it's not true for this person. So a couple obstacles for us in using our words for encouragement. Obstacle number one, this is what some of us may be thinking. I'm afraid if I encouraged them, they would get prideful and that's a sin. Meaning I'm just looking out for their own best interests. I I want them to, to stay humble. And so I don't want to use, I don't want the devil to use my positive words to cause them to sin. You know, I like to win. Anybody else like to win? Show of hands, please. The rest of you are liars. I like to win. I'm not one of those that pouts when I lose. I just never try to lose. And if I, it looks like I'm going to lose, I just quit. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so I've always liked to win. If there's something in my life that I feel like I'm, I can't achieve, then I'll just work at it and work at it and work at it until I, I conquer it. So this is incredibly frustrating for Amanda to, to live with. Uh, you always, if you want to know, how, how should we pray for our church? Pray for Amanda. Uh, life is hard for her uh, living with me. Uh, so I, I loved to play basketball growing up, and, and I earned about as many awards as you could earn in, uh, in southwest Missouri, a small school, playing basketball. So not a big deal. Amanda went to one of these Super 5A high schools here in Houston, and there have been on occasion in our 14 years of being together, 12 years of marriage next Sunday, uh, that she has hinted, hinted at the possibility that I may not have been able to make her high school team. And it frustrates me because there's nothing I can do to prove her wrong, which she is wrong, clearly. There's nothing I can do, you know? It's not like I can show up to her former high school and be like, what's up, boys? I'm ready to ball, you know? Like, I'm an old man now, and I'm not as good as I once was. But if I could go back in time to prove to her that I am, in fact, a winner, no matter what the geographical location is, I would do that. But I can't. But I love to win. And I think you understand that because you also love to win. So uh, about a month or two ago, we were leaving church here, uh, and we were going to eat at a Chinese restaurant over there in Spring Cypress. And and uh, the, the dinner's over, and so it's fortune cookie time. And so I break open my fortune cookie, and the fortune reads, Be a winner. And I'm like, Amen. <laughs> Amen to that. God, not normally speaking through the fortune cookie, but clearly He's speaking through the fortune cookie. I go to pay for our bill, and I'm only gone for a few minutes. And then I come back, and my fortune suddenly has a second line. And I, I brought it for you to see. Come <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I'm not pointing any fingers. The handwriting is awfully neat for the rest of the people in our family. 
Well, we all know people like this. We all know people who we are worried about their humility uh, in general. And if there's no one in your life that you are worried about their humility, it's because everyone else is worried about yours. <laughs> that's the funny, that's the lighthearted side of wanting to pe- keep people humble. But there is a more sinister side to it, uh, I think, in most of us, where it's not that we want keep, to keep people humble, it's we want to keep them in their place. And we will use our words to make sure that that happens. Because maybe we're afraid that if, if we encourage them, they're going to be lifted up. And when they're lifted up, that means we get pushed down. And so, so we're not going to encourage them. Or, or maybe we just don't like them. And that's the gut honest truth. And we don't want them to be lifted up by any words of encouragement, especially ours. So some people will be intentionally discouraging, but I'm guessing that's not the flavor in this room this morning. Most of us don't have that kind of courage. So what we will do to keep people in their place is we will just withhold encouragement. We'll just be silent so that they can get the point without us actually having to say the point. But here's the the good news and the bad news, the good news is, is it's not our job to keep people in their place. It's not our job to keep someone humble. And it's really impossible for us to do anyway. You cannot manipulate somebody's humility with your withholding of words of encouragement. And that is God's job. He says in Scripture, That he opposes the proud, but he will give grace to the humble. And and most of us agree with that. And just our motto is, well, if you're going to oppose them, then let me oppose them with you. We'll be in this together. But what's true for me, and you don't have to wear this this morning. This is just maybe something for me personally. Is I need to worry about other people's humility less and my own humility a lot more. Clearly, my fortune cookies are speaking to me. Obstacle number two. I don't encourage them because they haven't met my standard yet. Meaning, I would encourage them if they did something worth encouraging. And as soon as they do something worth encouraging, then I'm going to be right there with them. But again, for me, I have too many standards and most of my standards are too high. Last week, we were swimming out of the pool, Amanda and I and the kids, and uh, Jackson and Annabeth were playing this game where they had a big rubber ball, and Jackson was in the pool, and he was throwing it to Annabeth as she would jump off the side and try to catch it, you know, and they were taking turns. And so Jackson was throwing the ball to Annabeth, and, and I found myself coaching him up. He wasn't doing it exactly the way I thought it should be done, and so I'm coaching him up, and I'm like, don't do it like this. You need to do it like this. And after about 10 seconds of that, I was like, what am I doing? You ever have one of those moments where it's like, why are you such a moron? You know, like, what does it matter with you? Because I thought, who has a standard for something like this? You know, like, where did I learn the proper way to throw the ball to your five-year-old sister as she jumps into the pool? And when is that, all this going to be relevant for him? My, my job as a dad is to, to raise a young man that loves Jesus with all of his guts and is a winsome person. That's my goal, and that's what I want for Jackson. You know, it's not like when he's 30, you know, five, he's going to say to his 31-year-old sister, hey, let's jump in the pool. I'm really good right now, you know? <laughs> catch this ball. That's, when is that ever going to be relevant? So why would I have a standard for that that he would have to meet? 
See, some of us have been really hurt by people, and that is real, and that is authentic, and that is totally justified. You feel hurt, and you feel pressed down, and you feel discouraged, and maybe that's exactly where you should be based on what they have done. But for me, when everybody is always letting me down, when everyone is always letting you down, That sounds like a you problem and not a them problem. I am the common denominator when everyone is always letting me down. That's cynicism. And cynicism is the natural byproduct of demanding perfection from imperfect people. I start thinking about some of the relationships that I have that are strained, where the peace is uneasy if there's peace at all and most of the time i am demanding something from them that not even god demands of me i'm asking them to be perfect i am asking them to play every relational note right and that's not fair because can you imagine can you imagine if god waited to give us encouragement only after we achieved his standard Can you imagine Jesus waiting to do for us only after we've measured up? We would never hear anything good from God. We would never be built up in any way. If he said, I've got so much backloaded for them, as soon as they do this and do this and do this and do this and do this, then I'm going to give all the encouragement they could ever need. We'd never get it because we could never achieve his standard. And so let's not ask others to do what God is not waiting for to do for us. See, here's the reality of of relationships. Encouragement builds trust and trust leads to influence. Encouragement builds trust and trust leads to influence. If you want someone in your life to change, maybe they're not meeting your standards. That's very real. They're not measuring up. They're doing things that you don't approve of. They're, they're, They're treating you in a way that's not appropriate. If you want to influence them, the way to influence is not to withhold from them. Because all that happens when we withhold encouragement is we strain the relationship. That relationship uh, starts having distance in it, either emotional distance or physical distance. I mean, imagine in, in relationships where you don't know where, you're, where you stand with that person, meaning you don't know if they like you, you don't know if they approve of you, you don't know if they speak about you kindly when you're not around. In those relationships, do you just volunteer to go over there? You, just vol- you call those people up and say, hey, let's hang out. That would be really fantastic. No, in a lot of cases, we will put physical distance into relationships where we don't know where we stand. And if we can't put physical distance there, maybe you work with that person. Maybe you're in a family with that person. Maybe you're just, maybe you go to church with that person. When you can't put physical distance, we will put emotional distance. So the way to influence into somebody's life is not to withhold encouragement. Men, if your wives do not know if you think that they are a good wife or not, I promise you there's part of herself that she is withholding from you. Because she doesn't know where she stands and there's going to be some distance there. If we demand that our children achieve, 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 achieve for us. At all costs, before we're willing to praise them, before we're willing to say I'm proud of you, before we're willing to say you did a good job. 
Because there are children and you may be able to control them, they may achieve for you right now. But as they're achieving for you, they're trusting you less and less and they're putting emotional distance in between you and them because they don't know where they stand. Encouragement builds trust and trust builds influence. Number three, obstacle to us being encouraging people. I've heard some things about them, so I don't think I can encourage them now. So everyone's super favorite topic, gossip. And everybody said amen because we've all been guilty of it this week. That's the great thing about gossip is uh, we have good numbers. So you look to your left and you're not alone. You look to your right, you're not alone. This, uh, gossip is, is so easy to be a part of uh, and it's easy to justify. And part of it's easy to justify because it's kind of hard to... to to define, like, when do I know when it's gossip and when it's not? And there's some invisible line in almost every conversation. And a lot of times we don't know that we've been involved in gossip until we've actually left the conversation. And so one thing that is helpful to me in knowing, is this conversation good or is this cross the line, is to ask myself, if is any relationship being hindered because of this conversation? Is any relationship... Uh, being hindered because I'm sharing this with this circle of people? Is any relationship hindered because I'm hearing this? And if gossip is is involved, then the answer is always yes. The answer is always yes. The relationship between you and the offending person is hindered when you share that uh, information in that circle. And the relationship of the people who are listening to you and that offending person are hindered, uh, is hindered when you uh, when you share that information. Here's the test. The next time that you are in a, uh, a conversation that steers into gossip, just ask yourself, do I want to hang out with that offending person more or less now because I've heard this or I've said this? And always the answer is less. Nobody leaves a gossip conversation and then is like, man, I can't wait to hang out with that person. They sound so wonderful. No, it hinders every relationship that it is a part of. And we know that. I mean, no, nobody in here is going to advocate for gossip, right? Nobody's going to confront me after this is over and be like, I appreciated everything you had to say, except for the gossip. I think that it's fine. You know, no one's going to say that. And if you are thinking that, you're wrong. I mean, everybody in the world knows that it's wrong, but we can't help ourselves, can we? It's like a magnet. And any lull in the conversation, you're like, I don't know where to go with this. It's like, well, let's just talk about somebody else. That'd be fantastic. And we do it because it's fun. And the Bible says it's fun. The Bible says that gossip is fun. It says it like this. It says really that gossip is like chocolate. Listen, chocolate is not good for any of us. And yet I'm going to go eat a candy bar after this is over just because I can. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 8 says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body gossip tastes good that's why we share it and that's why we hear it but it damages every relationship listen even the relationships in the circle of gossip you're like well no it it actually brings us closer together it gives us something to, to talk about and bond about it's hindering and eroding those relationships because if you're willing to talk about somebody else in that circle do you think anyone in that circle is going to believe that you would not say something about them? 
when we're gossiping, what we're communicating is not just I have interesting information about someone else. What we're communicating is I am an untrustworthy person. You ever been in an accountability group? Number one rule of accountability group is don't skip accountability group because you're probably the topic of that week's conversation. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 8 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. As one pastor I heard recently says, You be the last person on the gossip train, meaning when it gets passed down to you, it stays with you. Isn't that the kind of relationship we want at the end of the day? Listen, it's scary to be the one friend that's like, I'm out. I'm out on this gossip thing. I know we've been doing it forever. I know it's like a habit of ours, but I am out on it. It's scary to to be that because you know inherently that then you move into the primary topic of their next conversations. And you know that. You know that. And so it takes a tremendous amount of courage to just be like, I love you so much. I still want to be your best friend, but we cannot talk about this kind of stuff anymore. It's scary to do that. But at the end of the day, wouldn't you rather be the person that when bad news happens to somebody, when their kids start making bad choices or their husband does something dumb or, or uh, they're sick or whatever happens, Don't you want to be the person when they go to search their phone to say, who can I trust with this information? Wouldn't you rather forego a hundred conversations of gossip to be a part of one conversation that's actually meaningful and helpful to somebody? At the end of the day, wouldn't we rather be the trustworthy one that's a part of less conversations than the untrustworthy one that's a part of them all? God has anointed our words for his purpose, like a tree of life, giving and creating and building up people. Our words working God's destiny in somebody else. I've told you before, but when I was a teenager, I was forced to go to church by my parents. I, I didn't necessarily want to be there, but I had to. They, they asked real simple questions like, do you have a job? And uh, the answer was no. And then it was like, well, then I guess you're going to church with us. And, uh, and so we would go, and they, they, they double punished me because not only had I had to come to church, but I had to go to student church. Like I had to go to the youth thing, and that was like two times the church. And, and I would go, and I would wear a baseball cap, and I would try to sit as far away as possible from the action. So wherever I thought the action was going to be, I was going to sit in the opposite end. And I pull my baseball cap way down over my eyes just to give everybody the, 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 you know, message. Like, I'm not a part of this. But my youth pastor was this great guy, and he didn't really care about things like, you know, your baseball cap and how far it was pulled down over your eyes. He didn't get messages like that. And so he said to me, he's like, hey, I need some help, and I want you to do it. I want you to bring a fun game every time we gather. To bring something fun to do, bring something hilarious to do. Uh, and he's like, I don't care if you humiliate somebody because everybody knows if you're humiliating somebody in Jesus' name, it's fine. And so so he gave me a bunch of these books. I had these silly games in them, these mixer type things. And, and so every week I had to, to bring something to the table even though a lot of the weeks I didn't really want to be there, but I was afraid to, to let him down. And he threatened me by, by saying, hey, listen, if you don't do it, I don't do it. So everybody's going to be mad at you. And uh, that was a good way to transfer pressure. And so, so I showed up. And somewhere in the midst of all that, he gave me a book called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. 
And inside, he wrote a message to me, and uh, it was written in September of 1998. I was 17 years old, and it said, Dear Kurt, uh, now two kinds of people in this world can call me Kurt. Uh, one is my wife, and the rest live in southwest Missouri. Uh, when I moved to Texas, I felt like I needed to be more professional, and uh, I needed a, a professional name, and so now I'm Curtis Jones instead of Kurt Jones. Kurt Jones didn't have enough syllables in it for me anyway, so uh, so professional name. So it says, Dear Kurt, and uh, he said, uh, I, I see, I know, and believe that you have a, a natural gift of leadership. And I know God has something special planned for you. And I can't wait to see it. And he signed his name, September 1998. And what's crazy to me, what's crazy is that I'm telling you right now, and I need you to believe me, that the person that he's writing about in the front book of that cover, which is less than a mile from this room right now, did not exist. didn't exist. That person that he's talking about, it was not me. If you had found that book on the floor of our church, you would have thought that he misunderstood someone else's name. He wasn't encouraging what was, he was encouraging what could be. And God has given us that power. God has anointed your words to have that much power and weight to cooperate with his work and somebody else. See, you may not believe in that person, but he does. You may have written that person off a long time ago. They just may be another strange face in a sea of faces, but God has a plan for their life and he has anointed your words to have power, to activate that plan, to bring that plan, that destiny to pass in that person. But here I have been for all these years using my words selfishly to gain for me, to do for me, to protect for me. But maybe, maybe he didn't give us the ability to speak for ourselves, but he gave us the ability to speak because he knew what it could accomplish in somebody else's life. Like what it says in Revelation chapter 22. You don't have to turn there. We already read it when it talks about the tree of life being there in the kingdom of God to come. And its leaves are like the are for the the healing of the nations. And if you've ever been the recipient of some well-timed, encouraging words, you know the healing power that those words have. For those young men who didn't hear from their fathers consistently, I'm proud of you and you do good work. When someone comes and says that to you, it's, it's healing to you. It's not just something nice. It has a healing effect to you. When, when you've let somebody down and maybe in your growing up experience, the word forgive was never said and there were grudges held against you. When somebody says to you, I forgive you, there's a healing that happens inside of you. And I love that, that the tree of life has leaves and his leaves are for the healing of the nations and leaves go in every direction. Encouragement, though, most often flows downward. That's why if you're a parent... It's easier for you to encourage your children than it is to encourage your spouse, isn't it? If you're a teacher, it's easier to encourage the kids in your class than it is to encourage the other teachers, right? I mean, men, think about us leaving today. We're all inspired about being an encouraging person. And and you go up to a friend out in the parking and you're like, hey, man, I've been watching you. You know, like, that's creepy. Um, You know, and uh, and I've, I've been thinking about what I've been seeing. Like, that's even creepier. 
And uh, I just want to tell you that you are an unbelievable father, and I've been noticing that, and I just, I just wanted to encourage you. That, that's awkward, isn't it? That's awkward. That's weird. And we don't want to be weird, and we don't want to be awkward, and I think that in general is a good thing. So that's why it's easier for encouragement to flow down than it is to flow from peer to peer, flow across. And then it's even harder for it to go up. You know, mostly the only thing that floats upward is discouragement. So if you want to be a standout employee at your work, if you want to just set yourself aside um, as different and distinct from all the other people that work in your company, walk into your manager's office tomorrow morning, whoever your boss is, and be like, hey, I've worked for you for one year, two years, 10 years, and I don't think I've ever said this, but I just want you to know that I enjoy working for you and you do a good job. And walk out. You don't have to cry or anything. Probably, probably a good idea if you don't, you know. And just build encouragement into your culture at your workplace. And trust me, there will be no end to the amount of authority that they pass over to you. Because I promise you, your manager and the boss, whoever that is, feels like they can't trust anybody in your office. But encouragement builds trust. Trust builds influence. So encouragement should flow in every direction. Upward to those who have authority over us. Side to side, those who are peers with us. And those who are underneath our authority, whether in our home or some other situation. I love how the story of Nehemiah comes together. Nehemiah is an Israelite who had been living away and Babylonians had come and destroyed Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem were totally torn down. They were just pieces and shambles. And they had started rebuilding a little bit. But when Nehemiah gets there, he's got a call from God. And he starts organizing people for the protection of Jerusalem. And, but they have this wall that has all these holes in it. And it's like, how can we keep out the enemies if, if they can just come right in the walls? And, and so Nehemiah starts assigning families to, to do two things, to both guard the breaches in the wall, to guard the holes in the wall, and when there's no threat of attack, to build up the breaches. So you can imagine your family being assigned a hole in the wall there in Jerusalem, and your job is when people are trying to come in, you protect it. And when nobody's trying to come in there, you're putting the bricks and rebuilding the wall. I feel like that's a choice that God has given us with our words people all around us. We don't know what they're going through. We don't know who in this room has cancer. We don't know who in this room has just lost their job. We don't know who in this room is worried every time they swipe that card at the store that it's going to come back decline. We don't know who's going through what. And and we've all lived enough life, both in the highs and lows, to feel like there are a bunch of holes in our walls, holes in our defenses. We feel totally unprotected. And we get the choice to stand guard over other people's lives with our words of encouragement. To say, when the rest of the world is on the attack, I'm going to use my words to fortify, to build up what's lacking in you. Or we can use our words as weapons to put new holes in the walls. And for me, probably not for you, but for me, my words have been weapons far more than they've been fortifications. But God has anointed the syllables that come out of your mouth to accomplish his purpose. So let's accomplish that purpose this week. Let's pray. God, do a holy work in us. 
We need the Spirit of God to do this work in us. We, uh, we're powerless to do it on our own. If we just try to use willpower, we'll never make it. We'll never make it. So do something great in us that would allow great words of encouragement to come out of us. I want you to just take a second to pray and just ask God to do that work in you. Maybe there's some things that you need to confess before Him, to repent of, to turn away from. Just ask Him to do that miracle of being an encouraging person in you. I want you to take just a second in spirit of prayer to do that. Yeah, we cling to you, not to ourselves today. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to take the Lord's Supper now, and that's how we're going to end our services. So if those who are helping us serve it would mind taking their places in the corners. See, Jesus is the word of life. When you talk about a word of encouragement, the name of Jesus is the ultimate in encouragement. Because his word came to us when we were at our worst. The scripture says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you and I deserved encouragement the least, God sent the most encouraging thing to us in this form of his son, Jesus. And so the word of life has come to you. Maybe you've never put your trust in Jesus. You've never walked into the kingdom of God. And that's available for you today. So if you're here and you're like, I'm not sure. I feel like I'm on the outside of this thing looking in. You don't have to say magic words. You don't have to come to church for four weeks to prove that you mean it. You just confess right now where you are. I believe in Jesus. And God honors that simple prayer. Whoever confesses um, the name of the Lord will be saved. So you confess the name of Jesus today and salvation will come to you. And that's what we're honoring today as we come to the Lord's Supper. We're going to rip off the bread, and you're going to hear somebody say the broken body of Jesus. And uh, you're going to take that bread, and you're going to dip it in the cup, and you're going to hear someone say the blood of Jesus shed for you. And you remember that it's the word of life that's come to us. And with the word of life, we'll go and be life for other people. Father, I pray that you would make this time of communion holy, special. We would remember and honor Jesus. Remember what's done for us. I pray you would also uh, use it to heal broken places in our lives. In Jesus' name.